This podcast is sponsored by GoGo, the leader in in-flight connectivity and wireless entertainment. Our superior technologies, best-in-class service, and global reach help planes fly smarter. Our partners perform better, and their passengers travel happier. Learn more at gogoair.com forward slash airline. The airline universe is full of big threes. Europe's big three is, of course, IAG, Air France, KLM, and Lufthansa. In America, the big three are Delta, United, and American. In the Gulf region, the big three are Emirates, Qatar Airways, and Etihad. There's even the big three alliances, Star, Sky Team, and One World. But the big three we're going to talk about today belongs to China. Yeah, it's Air China, China Eastern, and China Southern. And they are deserving of a big title. In 2015, those three carriers combined for $3.7 billion in net profit, excluding Forex losses and subsidy gains. Two of these carriers at least wobbled a bit in the fourth quarter. Is that a sign the slowing economy is catching up with them? I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Cat- Kaplan Managing Partner at Airline Weekly. We'll talk about China's Big Three. Also, Air France KLM is losing its CEO. Air New Zealand has some Virgin Australia shares for sale. Plus, we'll touch on the Alaska Virgin deal yet again. It's all coming up on the Airline Weekly Lounge. for joining us. We're starting with China's big three carriers. Before we go too far down the rabbit hole, let's start with a foundational idea. The performance of the Chinese economy, which the world is giving a lot of attention, doesn't necessarily determine how the airlines perform, does it? Well, that's a very good question, Jason. You know, so, so far, yeah, you're right. They've held up well in the face of all the other questions about what's going on in China. The question is how long that can go on. First of all, there's this broader question about, you know, can China's consumer economy hold up reasonably well, even with uh, so much else going wrong there, you know, the real estate markets and and so forth. And and then more specifically, yeah, what about air travel demand? Uh, You mentioned it. The Chinese carriers had a a, a rather good uh, 2015, certainly a sort of a standout sector in, in the economy there considering what was uh, what was going on. We're talking about airlines that, yeah, put up billions in profits and, and certainly for the year anyway, uh, did better than many others around the world. Yeah, they had a good year, but in the fourth quarter, which is their off-peak quarter, two of the big three had negative operating margins, negative 4% for China Eastern and negative 2% for China Southern. Those numbers, by the way, exclude currency exchange losses and gains from government subsidy. Nobody likes to post a negative quarter, but were these numbers particularly worrisome? Well, you're right, an off-peak quarter. So in and of itself, uh, no cause for alarm, although they did mark a deterioration vis-a-vis the, the year prior. So that's really the, the bigger cause for concern. Now, in China Eastern's case, if you just look at the at the the numbers per se it was one of the bigger declines in the world uh, oh gosh roughly an eight percent decline from you know solidly positive last year to positive four percent last year to negative four percent this year although last year's figure had been inflated by some pension changes that were just kind of a little bit hard to nail down in terms of uh, how, how much of the uh a good figure last year, those accounted for. So uh, kind of an important asterisk there. But uh, yeah, China Southern too, uh, uh, some some deterioration. And that's despite the fact that uh, Chinese carriers 
got the full benefit uh, of the falling fuel prices. They don't hedge fuel. And so whereas some other carriers around the world, you know, are going to get some more tailwind, uh, you know, let's say fuel prices kind of stay where they are right now, just from bad hedges wearing off. Chinese carriers already got all of that. there's, There's no more to come from that unless fuel prices themselves spot fuel prices begin declining again. So, uh, so yeah, they, they uh, were some of the, well, rare airlines around the world that, that deteriorated in the fourth quarter compared to the year prior. So the, uh, the year as a whole was decent for those two, at least, China Eastern and China Southern, a bit of a concern. And what you also have here is, is sort of a, 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 a two-track situation where, you know, Air China uh, holding up rather well and the other two perhaps facing more challenges. So that, too, is something to watch uh, going forward. If Air China is going to continue to distinguish itself as, as the the clearly uh, more profitable of the three. With two of the carriers, we saw some remarkable labor cost increases. Air China's labor costs were up 17% for the year. China Eastern's operating costs were up 14% in the quarter. Why are labor costs increasing so fast? Well, labor costs in China in general are, are, are going up. I mean, that's part of the whole story. You know, China perhaps losing some of its competitive edge. You know, I mean, it largely established itself on the on the world economic stage by just being able to do things very inexpensively. You know, demographic changes there now, an aging population. It, it just costs more to do a lot of things in China, you know, include paying airline employees. Although in the case of Air China, kind of a technicality driving some of that. Basically, they they began including their their maintenance division uh, on, on the uh, on the airlines account, uh, basically counting those employees now as employees of Air China uh, rather than as as a uh, you know a different kind of contract expense. And so so that was at least driving part of that. China Southern, by the way, in that uh, category, labor costs not experiencing the same inflation as the other two. We mentioned in Airline Weekly recently that none of China's big three dominate their hubs. Can you tell us what that looks like in real terms? Well, yeah, you know, especially, gosh, a place like Beijing, um, you know, Air, Air, Air China is the biggest carrier there, but it, it's far from dominant. I mean, it's, 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 it's not even, even half the place. You know, China Southern has, has a, a fairly large hub operation of its own there. So, you know, a place... Oh, gosh, uh, you know, if you picture a, a Chicago type situation uh, you know, among airports in, in the West where United is the larger airline, but Americans very big there, too, and, and so forth. You know, nobody dominates that. Uh, Shanghai, to, to a degree, the same story. Uh, Shanghai also impacted by the fact that you have two major airports there. So China Eastern, the biggest airline, but by no means dominant uh, in the same way. Airlines tend to dominate sometimes smaller hubs. Uh, you know, of those big three, I mean, the one, the, the big three airlines, rather, China Eastern, China Southern Air, China, as you mentioned, uh, you know, China Southern is the one that uh, is is more dominant in, in its biggest hub, Guangzhou. Uh, it, it's you know, depending on how you measure, roughly half the uh, the airport or more. Uh, even that, though, you know, not not dominant in the same way that so uh, you know. Delta dominates Atlanta, or certainly American dominates, uh, you know, Charlotte. Let's say, uh, you know, where it's you know 90% of that airport. Not, you know, nothing like that at, at these Chinese hubs. But part of that just is the fact that they are huge cities with all kinds of service from all over the world, and and, and everywhere in the world when that's the case, 
the dominant airline tends to be less dominant than is the case in a place like, well, you know, since I just said it, Charlotte. Okay. I think that uh, leads us to our airline 101 question. Dun, dun, dun. Why is it important for an airline to dominate a hub? Dominance tends to correlate with, well, I mean, in raw terms, profit, so it can anyway. Now, dominating a, a very small hub might not be helpful. You know, we, we, we can see hubs that no longer exist as hubs because it didn't matter how dominant an airline was. You know, there, there just simply wasn't enough of, of, of a market there. But yeah, you know, if an airline provides the best schedules, it's, it's probably going to have a lot of people in the corporate travel community flying that airline all the time. A lot of people in town, corporate travelers as well as leisure travelers, carrying that airline's frequent flyer card in, in, in their wallets and, and, and signing up for the co-branded credit cards and all those sorts of things. Quite simply, it's, 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 it's a less competitive marketplace in terms, at least, of, of nonstop competition to, uh, to a lot of destinations. Even at hubs that are dominated by one airline, look, I mean, there, there tend to be other options, connecting options using other hubs, you know, if you want to, if you don't mind going at it away. And, and, and those do put downward pressure, uh, pricing pressure rather, on the prevailing nonstop fares. It's not as if an airline almost anywhere could just kind of charge whatever it wants. Still, a, a you know, supply and demand economics at work in a competitive marketplace. But yeah, airlines do, broadly speaking, tend to run up the score in those hubs where they have a very strong presence, and then just sort of hope to hold serve in, in the in the more competitive hubs. You know, very hard to generate outsized profit in a place like Los Angeles, where, gosh, I don't think any airline has has 20 percent of, of, of the place there and, you know, uh, everybody kind of vying for share. And so. Uh, so, yeah, so airlines that have some of those hubs that they dominate tend to produce a disproportionate percentage of, of their profits there. By the way, since we're mentioning U.S. airlines, that's sort of one theory as to why Delta and American have generally outperformed United quite simply the fact that Delta and American have more of those hubs, uh, you know, in Delta's case, uh, Oh, Atlanta, Minneapolis and others in Americans, you know, Charlotte, Miami, hubs like those where they where they are rather dominant. United, although has a very nice presence uh, in a lot of the most important markets, uh, has fewer of those places that where it's the, the very clearly dominant airline. Getting back to China. For all three of the big three, the strategy seems to be grow internationally and partner with whomever you can. Yeah, whomever you can, indeed. China, although certainly far from being alone in the world uh, in doing this, a place where airlines just have absolutely no compunction about uh, having not only partnerships, with, but sometimes very close partnerships with other airlines outside their uh, global alliance, most prominently perhaps uh, Air China Star Alliance with uh, Cathay Pacific in one world. You know, cross shareholding their uh, very close relationship. It's just one of many examples. And yeah, you said it grow internationally. I mean, this this long haul boom, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, in the face of everything else going in the Chinese economy, going on rather in the Chinese economy, you know, how, how this all shakes out. It, it, it's just eye popping some of these routes from secondary Chinese cities to, uh, well, in some cases, secondary cities very far away in the world, you know, places where you say, gosh, can they support this growth? Uh, you do have to remind yourself, though, that a secondary Chinese city can still have 10 million 
people. You know, so China is is different in that regard from a lot of other places uh, in the world. You know, a small backwater town in, in China has more people than uh, in, in some cases many countries. But yeah, very, very fast international growth. And for all of the big three, you sort of have the, the, the headline overall growth figures, which in some cases might be, you know, eight, nine, ten percent or something, uh, but but driven by uh, very fast international growth and uh, and much, much slower domestic growth. I want to revisit the Alaska Virgin America deal one more time. In this week's issue, we had a great list of pros and cons of why the deal will work or won't work for Alaska. One thing we mentioned was that Alaska is saying that unlike previous mergers, this one is starting from a position of strength. Yeah, position of strength for for Alaska for sure. Uh, you know, Virgin America, as we as we discussed last week, the weakest of the big U.S. airlines, but still, you know, a perfectly solvent airline uh, and. and in the upper half, if not upper third of, of, of airlines around the world, just because of how high the tide is in the U.S. Yeah, you know, hard to say that all of the other mergers were, were necessarily from a position of weakness. Uh, America West U.S. Airways, which kind of started the whole modern era of mergers. Yeah, there. Uh, that one probably saved two airlines, certainly saved U.S. Airways. I mean, they, they were... Uh, uh, really on the verge of liquidation without that. And the same way to happen to America West too. So with that one very much, two-week airlines merging, uh, having ultimately great success doing it. Uh, you know, with the others all somewhere in between. Uh, you know, Southwest AirTran, if you think about that. Southwest, obviously, had all kinds of wherewithal to to do the deal. And it bought an airline, AirTran, that had been very successful, but that sort of suddenly felt very vulnerable uh, in, during the recession and so forth. You know, Delta Northwest, those airlines were... were uh, you know, had emerged from bankruptcy and in fine shape. But but yeah, they were facing, uh, you know, extreme fuel costs and a global recession and all of that. So, you know, I think I think uh, Alaska's point is that, uh, you know, all the others perhaps, you know, were happening during, you know, in situations where if the airlines themselves weren't always weak, there were just other other problems in the world that, Although, to be clear, there are problems in the world today, you know, don't exist in, necessarily to the same degree in the U.S. airline sector. The more interesting question is, OK, but is that a good thing or a bad thing to be merging um, you know, during a position of strength? Because, you know, let's face it, when you had bankrupt airlines in some cases involved in other mergers, that gave those companies great latitude to do all kinds of things, you know, sometimes very painful things, uh, you know, in terms of cutting costs in ways that uh, that Alaska and Virgin are not going to be able to do because everybody knows that it's not as if they, uh, you know, they aren't going to survive if they don't slash labor costs or something like that. That's not going to happen. So, you know, so sometimes the weaknesses did give uh, some of those air other airlines actually some leverage that Alaska doesn't have. But yeah, no question that this one affords them a lot of breathing room that other airlines perhaps didn't have just room to maneuver you know a few things can go wrong and this can still work out well in a way that that wouldn't necessarily be the case for for some of those past mergers okay moving from one successful american carrier to another uh, later this week delta will report its q1 earnings and that will kick off another earnings season with delta we're expecting operating margins in the high teens 
that wouldn't be bad, would it? Not bad at all. I, I mean, you know, we we talk about the you know the, the off peak uh, first quarter, which, which uh, you know very often the worst of the year, but you just almost wouldn't know it anymore. Uh, and, and it's it's thanks to highly seasonal scheduling and and you know all the things that Delta perhaps most prominently about the uh, among the U.S. airlines, but certainly not not alone in doing these things has done to to reform itself. I mean, in the old days, airlines just kind of took for granted that low season was when fares were lower and, and, and um, you know, just accepted that. And, and really the whole game was make as much money as you could in the summer and then just try not to lose it all, try not to give it all back in the winter. And now, far from giving it all back, I mean, they put up margins that aren't all that far off uh, in the winter from, from what they were in the summer. And really, the lesson is, you know, you can you can still get fares in the winter that aren't so much lower than the fares you got in the summer. You just have to fly a lot less to do it. Uh, you know, just just very precisely match uh, supply with demand. You know, American, uh, you know, another that's that's really done this. I mean, they, you know, there were markets that they canceled for like, you know, like three weeks during the winter, three weeks in February. You know, the idea is that you can lose a lot of money in a few bad weeks, uh, you know, and really wipe up out your profits, especially with long haul flying. So, yeah, they're all doing it. Nobody more so than than Delta among the giant airlines. And through all of that depth maneuvering, just putting up margins that not too many years ago, nobody would have imagined. And what you just mentioned, the sort of high teens in this quarter, that represents just a huge year over year improvement even compared to last year, I mean, fuel, obviously a huge part of the story here. Fuel prices for the first quarter were, were way down from where they were even uh, even a year earlier, even after uh, back then the fuel prices had started falling. So, of course, that gets uh, gets tremendous credit for that, as well as the fact that it's just uh, Delta has some better exposure than even United and American uh, United has, of course, all that exposure to Houston, uh, a lot more exposure to Asia, uh, to, to, to trouble spots around the world. American, the, you know, the war and DFW, a lot of exposure to uh, to troubled South American economies. You know, the most exposure to to, to Brazil uh, and Venezuela among the big U.S. airlines. So, you know, Delta, although it has a broad global exposure, it's certainly uh, certainly affected by all the things uh, I just mentioned. The best of the three, uh, you know, in terms of not dis- having disproportionate exposure anyway to, in general, some of the biggest trouble spots. I'm sure we'll touch on it in next week's show. Changing continents, Air New Zealand wants to divest itself of Virgin Australia, of which it owns 26%. Who do you see that might be a buyer of Virgin Australia? Well, Brett Snyder in his uh, cranky flyer blog today called the HNA Group, that's the parent of, of Hainan Airlines, called them the... the uh, the patron saint of failing airlines because of a lot of their uh, investments around the world. He said they, they took the mantle from from Etihad, uh, which, which uh, you know, of, of course, has it, its share of less than successful airline investments around the world. So, you know, I suppose it could be them uh, or, or uh, you know, or another Chinese carrier. They, those airlines certainly have, have some appetite for having equity in other airlines around the world. Uh, it doesn't have to be an airline. Could could be. Uh, you know, could but be... just let me be clear. It won't be Etihad. Well, they already own part of Virgin Australia, so they they could take more shares um, uh, there. But uh, they seem to be losing some of their appetite for these investments. I mean, and, 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 and can you blame them? Uh, you know, look what's going on at Air Berlin. Uh, just just ghastly losses there. Virgin Australia of, itself, of course, uh, Jet Airways and, and so forth. So, you know, it hasn't worked out too well. 
uh, you you could imagine that their government owners are uh, you know are just just sort of reining it all in. Um, uh, you know that, that's just speculation, but but what we know is that. Uh, revenues in the Arabian Gulf are, are evaporating because of the oil bust. And uh, yeah, it, it, it uh, could just be answering a more austere period where they aren't as interested in, in tolerating all of those losses, which end up on their own income statement. So, you know, sure, they could up their stake uh, theoretically, but you know, I, I, I don't know that they will. Gosh, you know that things are bad at Virgin Australia when you see an airline like Air New Zealand. Although publicly, they just said, well, we just want to use the money for other things. Uh, you know, they know they're selling low here. You know, they, they've just lost their patience for continuing to absorb their share uh, of the issues there, considering what an important strategic partner Virgin Australia is for Air New Zealand. Uh, let's be clear. That was always the point of the investment was, was, was the strategic value of Virgin Australia, you know, being able to exercise control you know, use it to to uh, Air New Zealand's benefit. So if they're, despite all that strategic value, saying, look, we're, we're just not interested anymore, uh, really tells you that they're not optimistic about, you know, things turning around anytime soon. But that's been the problem for that airline is that because it is majority owned, I'm talking Virgin Australia, by strategic investors, you know, by Singapore Airlines, Etihad, and Air New Zealand, rather than by just, you know, more traditional investors who who want to see the airline profit in its own regard, that has handicapped it, you know, by all appearances anyway, because it's it's being run at least partly for the benefit of all his partners. Um, uh, you know, Air New Zealand, a very important Trans Tasman partnership there, and so you know perhaps things would be run somewhat differently if if it were majority owned by investors who want to see the airline profit uh, in its own regard, you know, rather than uh, sure they'd like it to profit, but they also just want to make sure it's doing the things that they need it to do for uh, for their own benefit. And we've seen over the years when one of them ups its stake, uh, one of those three airlines that owns part of it, you know, another then will raise its stake too, you know, sort of to maintain the uh, balance of power there. Probably not a recipe or an airline earning good profits in its own regard. And yeah, we'll have to see, uh, you know, if indeed they do fire, find a buyer for that stake, who it ends up being. In Paris, Air France KLM CEO Alexandre de Juniac is leaving the airline to become the IATA chief. Do you think a change of leadership will help or hurt with Air France's labor relations? Well, uh, I mean, labor relations haven't been good uh, lately, but, you know, but that's how it's always been. So, um, Look, they are likely to pick somebody who uh, who who counts labor relations, uh, good labor relations, rather among among their strengths. That's just an important part of of, of running that company. And so, uh, you know, it could even be somebody from outside the airline industry who just has good rapport with the unions. So, you know, things haven't been good, but they hadn't been good, uh, you know, for, for a long time. I mean, you know, they have their periods of, of, of labor peace there. But, yeah, it's 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 an airline that, you know, it's a, to some degree, whoever ends up being the new CEO, uh, an airline that to some degree is still is still run by by the unions, not by uh, not by the executives. Also, Dejuniak said he hopes to announce a new partnership with an Asian airline before he leaves. Any idea which airline that might be? Yeah, interesting, right? Uh, well, Air France KLM has pretty good coverage in mainland China. So that would seem one place where 
uh, they wouldn't have to worry. You know, they have uh, joint ventures with with both China Eastern and China Southern, actually, both Sky Team partners as well. But, you know, more than just alliance partners, uh, joint ventures there. And so that would seem to be one place where they wouldn't have to worry too much. You know, one place where they're weak is Japan. But I'm not really sure what they can do about that because, you know, you have the two giant airlines there, Japan Airlines. In one world, you know, very closely aligned with uh, with its one world partners. Uh, same goes for all the pond with Star Alliance partners. So you're kind of left with Skymark there, which, you know, which is restructuring itself through its its brush with death. So at least in terms of you know the domestic connections to secondary cities and so forth, you could work with them. But you know, yeah, that that, that will always have its limits. Wouldn't be surprised if he's talking about the ASEAN region, Southeast Asia, uh, a place where you know the Star Alliance is is. Uh, is rather dominant uh, if you think you know Singapore Airlines, Thai Airways. Uh, so there are SkyTeam Airlines there. Well, you know, you're really talking, you know, Garuda, which doesn't have the best geography. Malaysia Airlines is one that's that's already, you know, never mind the fact that it's a one-world airline and Air France KLM is in SkyTeam, already a partner, already a codeshare partner. So you know, the, who knows if that relationship could continue to evolve? Philippine Airlines actually a SkyTeam uh, partner already, and you know, perhaps uh, some more to come there. But that's a rather small airline with, you know, probably only so much upside in terms of doing something more. So uh, you know, those are some of the possibilities. Yeah, well. Uh, have to see what they what they end up doing. Okay. Now, we haven't done this all year, and I've been biding my time waiting for another lightning round. Dun-dun-dun. Mm. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs> That's our focus group approved trumpet blast. Oh, it's approved officially. Yes, but I still got to run it through legal. Mm, okay. Glad we're doing it all by the book now. Yep. Almost like a real company. So the lightning round. Okay. In this week's Airline Weekly, we published a list of the top 20 biggest air airports in the world and their year-over-year growth rates. So I'm going to give Seth the airports, the ranking, and its growth rate. And then you'll explain what's happening there. Preferably, we do this in a lightning-fast manner. Are you ready? Uh, ready as I'll ever be. Okay. We'll start with an easy one. Number three, Dubai, 11% growth. Yeah, still, still a growth market, uh, slower growing on a percentage basis than the other uh, Arabian Gulf airports, the, the, you know, the major ones, Abu Dhabi and Doha. Also, though, benefiting from uh, the fact that a year earlier, uh, there had been a runway closure, which kept things down. So comparisons, well, comparatively easier in 2015. Okay, number four, Chicago Hair, 10% growth. Yeah, uh, ultra low cost carriers, among other things, you know, making a big move there. Spirit you know, became very interested in, in in Chicago. Frontier grew rather rapidly there. Also, a lot of upgaging. Chicago is a place where you had a lot of those 50 seat regional jets as those go away, in some cases replaced by oh, 76 seaters and then the larger regional jets but replaced by even larger jets. Emirates, actually, we were talking about them a little bit earlier, upgaged because they fly just such large planes. They went from a 777-200LR to a uh, 777-300ER. I went into DO, uh, you know, kind of looked at the, the differentials everywhere, and that's 140 more seats on, on every flight. And they actually registered. When you look at, okay, what's happening in Chicago, uh, that upgaging uh, mattered and, 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 and helped the airport grow, along with all the other things that are happening there. 
Number 20, Bangkok, 14% growth. Yeah, that one also, kind of like what I said with Dubai, easy comps because something had happened. In, in, in Thailand's case, there had been political unrest a year earlier, so uh, just kind of bouncing back. You know, Thailand, always a popular uh, tourist destination. One of the most directional markets in the world. You know, not a lot of outbound travel, ton of inbound travel. And when things stabilized there, as they did, uh, no surprise that it, that it bounced back to uh, historical levels. Number six, London Heathrow, just 2% growth. Just two runways. Number 10, Dallas DFW, just 1% growth. Yeah, uh, well, it, all the action there is across town at, at Dallas Love Field. Uh, you know, at, at DFW, which, of course, remains a very important hub for American and so forth, Spirit has stopped growing. Uh, you know, American battling them very aggressively and, and seemingly succeeding in sort of redirecting Spirit's interest uh, elsewhere, but yeah, it's it. Uh, the action is at post right amendment Love Field, where Southwest can now fly anywhere in the country that it wants nonstop and seemingly having great success doing it. Congratulations, Seth. You survived another <laughs> lightning round. Well done. And congratulations to our listeners. You've survived another episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge. We'll be back next week with another grueling show. Until then, thanks for listening. No singing this week? That's right. Let's just say we got a lot of mail about that. <laughs> I bet.